Hey, yo, it's Good Internet. It's the Harvest of Colin Atrophy, and I'm very happy to welcome you to episode number 42 of Life Harvester Radio, the podcast where I talk to my friends or to people who I really want to be friends with but don't already know. Some of you are out there. We weren't friends before I interviewed you. We're friends now. You might be listening. If you are, hello. Much respect. Glad to know you. To everybody else listening, please rate, review, subscribe in whatever app you're listening on. Give me five stars. Say something nice about me. I don't know what it does, but it makes me feel good. This month's guest is Anna Armengod, and it is a fucking doozy. We talk about Anna's childhood in Mazatlan, Sinaloa, Mexico. Her adolescence in Mexico City, Dayefe. We talk about going on Warp Tour, singing in hardcore bands, making art, teaching. We talk about so much stuff. We also talk about a ton of fucking trauma, so big content warning for this one. There is discussion of sexual assault, there is discussion of state violence, there is discussion of kidnapping, of violence by narcos, there is discussion of deportation. And through the whole conversation, Anna was fucking cracking jokes and making me laugh, and it's pretty amazing. I think that it's a really important one. And I hope that you enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it. And here we go. funny because I was very anti flip-flop, anti-sandals my whole life because I'm from a beach town. Mm-hmm. So I was just like barefoot. So I had like this weird hatred towards it even though everyone used it. And when I became like a punk kid, it was even like more like, I fucking hate these things. And it wasn't up until like, maybe like four years ago that I finally gave in. And then I realized how stupid I've been for all these years. Yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff I feel like that we, um, like, as punks, are, like, make, like, an aesthetic choice as a teenager that then, like, feel stuck with until we're in our 30s and are finally able to be, like, no, it's okay, like, I'm allowed to wear shorts or (laughs) flip-flops or whatever it is. Um, Where are you from? What town are you from? I'm from a city called Mazatlan, and it's in the state of Sinaloa, Mm -hmm. which is in the Pacific coast of Mexico. Ah, it's beautiful. I'm from a beautiful place. Yeah. Like, I I miss it constantly, and I definitely, like, I feel like where I'm from defines so much of who I am. Yeah, I could see that. Do you miss being near the ocean? That's the happiest that I am. That's, like, always my, like, I want to return to the ocean. And, like, whatever friends that I, like, my friends that are really close to me that have experienced me by the ocean have experienced me at my finest. Yeah, I feel like that's my big my biggest gripe with Pittsburgh is that, like, I just, I feel landlocked in this way that I, is, like, is stifling. Yeah, I feel that. And and I feel like you get so teased by the amount of water there is. Mm-hmm. And it's all toxic. And it's all bad. And, I, like, I'm a huge fan of jumping off of tall things into water. So I'm, like, there's all these bridges. They're, yeah. like, there. And I just, and I can't. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, what was your childhood like? I had... Like, it's, it's hard to explain it because I would say that, I, like, I had, a, I had a lot of happiness, but 
I also had like an insane amount of pain because mm -hmm. my parents, like, my parents had a lot, like a lot of money before I was born. I have two older brothers that are nine and six years older than me, so they experienced like a certain way of life before I was born. My mom is a, is a therapist, and my dad, um, he at the time had like he worked for this like textile company that was like his family, but he he's a chef, and. Mexico went through like one of the worst economic depressions they had gone since like the 1950s. And this was in like 88 and it mm -hmm. all had to do with the narcos. Right. So where I'm from in Mexico, that's where like, like all of the narco conflict started. And, and you know, and, and the, the thing that it's really hard is that it all relates to the U.S. Like right. it's all through history by like US decisions, you know? And like narcos exist as like the name narcos since the 1950s, 1960s. And before that, you know, people were like definitely using drugs and growing them, but it, it wasn't what, what it is. Like it wasn't organized in the same way? It, no, it wasn't. So the way that it, that it works is that that area of Mexico was growing a lot of weed. And then when the U.S. was uh, building the railroads, they brought like a lot of Chinese immigrants into the U.S. under the promise that they were going to let them stay in the U.S. once they were building the railroads. Right. When the railroads were built, they were like, I don't think so. And they like send them all to the north of Mexico. So the north of Mexico has like a very large uh, Chinese population. Right. Like the biggest grocery store from like where I'm from is called Lei. And like, that's from like the lay family. Sure. And, you know, like, so when the uh, Chinese came to Sinaloa, the like indigenous people that were growing weed, like they all used like the same crops and they started growing poppy. And, you know, they used poppy like, like medicinally. Sure. But obviously it became a market, you know? And like during World War One, the US needed like a, a large amount of morphine. So they asked Mexico to bring that morphine to make uh -huh. it accessible. And so they created holes in the border for that, for those drugs to come through. By the second World War II, the demand for morphine was so much higher right. than, for, than the first World War. So they asked for even more drugs to come through. So it's, you know, it's all organized. It's not a secret that the U.S. has like a huge involvement with the narco. But the way that it happened is that Colombia was moving cocaine through coastal towns. Right. And then when they found out that Mexico had this plug, then they started moving the drugs through Mexico. So, and at first Mexico was oh. asking for, for cash, but then they were like, no, just give me product. So then they started leaving the product in Mexico and that's how narcos were formed. Okay. So this is like, um, the like drug, um, consumer markets are predominantly foreign. Um, and I mean, in some way, just the way that it like began, right? but it was all, I mean, it was all like dealt by the narcos that were all Mexican. Right. Okay. So that's the, so then in the eighties, there's this, uh, so what happens is that there's this DEA agent that gets killed in Guadalajara and he gets killed by this man that is the second hand of like the, like mayor of Guadalajara and it and it becomes like this huge political thing sure and when that happens you know like 
when, whenever there's something like that that is political and it becomes like a public eye, things like the external debt become an issue with like whatever country, you know, the U.S. is fighting with. And Mexico definitely had a very large external debt right. with the U.S. So where I'm from, which was a very large port that had like lived out of tourism close. So there was no longer any um, like cruises coming through. Okay. So like the like the economy collapsed. I mean, Mexico, like Mexico's economy was really hard, but in like Mazatlan, like things got really hard. Sure. So this was by by 89 and I was born in 1990. Okay. So when I was born, my parents had lost absolutely everything. And my mom, uh, being a therapist, she helped open up the first rehab center in Mexico. Oh, no shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, it still exists. It's called Oceanica, and it's the right side of, of like, Mazatlan. But when I was born, I, I barely saw my mom because she was, like, you know, like, this was, like, like a kind of luxurious rehab center. A lot of people from the U.S. would come there. And, like, so she would have to – it was, like, outside of the city. So by the time that I would wake up, my mom was gone. And by the time that she would come back, like, right, I was asleep. asleep. So I, I like could barely see my mom and I think that broke her heart. And my mom is like the strongest. She's like to me one of the strongest like women that I've ever met and she's definitely like a huge inspiration because like like this issue with like our economy and how hard things were it was like like a constant uh like kind of roller coaster where we would have some stability and then we didn't so i grew up getting evicted i mean my, we got evicted like eight times oh my god so i mean like we would have like a little bit of stability and then we would get evicted and you know getting evicted would mean like i mean i saw my mom like pushing cops away you know and i was very protected my, my brothers saw a lot more of that but i was like the littlest one and also like the only like woman as like of the three siblings. So like my mom mm -hmm. felt like she really had to protect me from what was going on, but it was very apparent to me. Right. So when my mom finally became like, had like a more stable, um, my dad had moved to Mexico city to start a restaurant. Uh, and like, they were not separated romantically. They were just separated by, by work. And my sure. mom would travel constantly because she was giving like workshops and like, doing all this thing as a therapist. So I was by my by myself. So I spent a lot of my, like a lot of this time, I mean like I had someone taking care of me, but it's not the same. Right. So I just spent so much time like just on my own. Yeah. And like, what were you into? You know, like what did you do in that time on your own? It's really funny because my mom, my mom paints this picture of myself that I think she, I think she didn't realize how weird I was. <laughs> you know, like it's hard she, for me to imagine anyone not realizing how weird you are. Exactly. So like, but I think that like she just like she's always like you were so sweet and like you were so kind and like she was just like I mean, you know, we were culturally Catholic because mm -hmm. I'm from Mexico right. and I'm a huge nerd. So I went to a private Catholic school that was like they gave me a full ride scholarship. So I was in this. I mean, this school was like so private and so small that I only had like, we were eight kids per, like per classroom. Whoa. And um, so, you know, it was like in this Catholic school where everyone's rich. I'm right. super poor. Like all my like books are like hand-me-downs. And they did the thing where like 
every year was a new issue that was slightly different. So the teacher was always like, that's not the um, what we're doing right now, Anna. Uh, can you like, you know, and I would always like just always be humiliated. Sure. But so like I always was really aware of the fact that like my like home situation wasn't the same and the people around me. Right. But I, you know, but I was a nerd. So like I won any every spelling bee. I was like a mathlete. I like like got all A's, you know, I sure. like had every medal and every single thing like possible. Right. But I, I also like one of my earliest memories of like being really hard on myself because I am super hard on myself, especially yeah. artistically, was me sitting down on my like little desk trying to write horror stories. And I was like seven years old uh -huh. and I was so mad that they were not scary enough. And I was like rewriting them and I was like drawing all these monsters and I could be like, it's not scary enough. Uh -huh. So I spent a whole afternoon like trying really hard to be like the best, you know, horror writer, like, right. like the best seven year old horror writer the world has ever seen and like feeling like it wasn't good enough. So when I look back to those things, I was like, mom, I was not a normal child. Right. But, but the thing that makes my life be always like so happy so like obviously i had all these like really hard things that i had to deal with mm -hmm. but to me like being in like from a place that was so simple i mean yet so complicated in this sure. like very complex and like you know like in the shadows type of way but i had the ocean and i spent most of the, my time like in the beach or like swimming or like I mean, we had a, a pool in one of the houses that, like, we lived in an apartment complex, and mm -hmm. there was a pool, and I would go to school with my swimsuit underneath my Catholic school uniform so that I would just, like, rip it off as soon as I got home, <laughs> and I wouldn't even have to go upstairs so that I could swim. Yeah, you're trying to save, like, that five minutes? Yeah. Wow. What's the, like, what are you, what are you, what is, like, the horror stories that you're reading that you're trying to aspire to as a seven-year-old? You know, like, what do you... Did you guys have those scary, did they translate those scary stories to tell in the dark books? Yeah, I definitely watched, I, well, I watched the show. I didn't know, like, and I, I really liked watching Goosebumps, too. Sure. But I didn't know they were books. It wasn't until I was, like, already a punk kid and I was, like, 11 or 12 that I found out that they were books. And then I bought them all. Sure. Because I was like, it's it's on, baby. Yeah, You know, yeah. I'm going to read this, like, but I was definitely, like, a little too old at this point. But I was still, like, so I still enjoy them. I think it's, like. Yeah, they're great. Like the way that they like they work in the formula that they had was always like very funny to me. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. But uh, I think that a lot of it came from like Mexican folklore too. Sure. Like there was all these things about where I'm from. Mm -hmm. There was like, like there's um, there's this big mountain that is downtown, and there's the gates, the Devil's Gates. There's literally this red gates and they say that it's the devil's gates and it's like this cave that was used to store ice before electricity like was there okay and then when it was like when there was electricity people would say that they would see a red light you know but it was just like an empty cave and this like right and but people would walk through and they would say that they would like smell sulfur and that there was this red light uh-huh and this is the entrance to hell and then they just like they went for it so yeah. they like put this gate up and also there was this three islands and and every island had like this like crazy story sure and my 
grandpa and my mom's side, my my mom's dad, he was uh, a captain, and he was like, he, like he was like a like an important captain in what he did, and he him and my grandma are the first uh, Mexican to ever touch Haiti. Whoa! Yeah, they made them sign and everything. I had never been to Haiti, but I definitely whenever I do go, I want to go find the like document that says that they they were there. You know? Yeah, for sure. But having him as a grandpa was awesome. Like he right. had all this like actual pirate stories and like you know oh, yeah and there's all these things that my brothers and i you know like in mexico you have a way of like kind of making fun of your hardships to be able to survive sure and i mean and it's true to a lot of communities mostly marginalized communities that's how they deal with with their pain yeah but in mexico so prevalent so my brothers and i will, like especially when we're close together we'll like hang out and talk about these things that we thought were normal and then we realized like holy shit, that was not normal. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, kidnapping was really big in the, uh, like, early 90s in Mexico. Yeah. So one of my, um, my brother Santiago's, um, like, the kids that he went to school with, one of his friends, uh, they were going to kidnap him, but they kidnapped the wrong kid. And the, the, the kid that they actually kidnapped came from a really poor family. And this kid that they were going to kidnap obviously came from a rich right. family. So he was hiding at my at my house for a while so that he wouldn't be found by the actual kidnappers. Right. You know, while the the like actual like while the family was trying to support this other family who like whose kid is like Got somewhere. Taken. Yeah, yeah. Fuck. Because it's not like if you get kidnapped, they're going to be like, oh, sorry. Yeah, we'll return him. Yeah. Like, so obviously they had to they had to go with it. But it's like. You know, we're kids, we're like sleepover, but it's not normal. That there's just like a like a literal child hiding from like some kind of paramilitary like. Uh, it, it was more like. So like the way that narco uh, culture works is that there's like tiers of narcos. You know, the mob is the same. Sure. And there's like and, and obviously it's people who are very marginalized. Right. So like that speaks a lot of like what's going on and what the need is, you know, because it's a lot easier to be a drug dealer if you have nothing. Sure. And to be like, and like narcos are very flashy. They don't hide that they're narcos because what's the point? They know they're going to die in like 10 years. So they mm -hmm. better live really good 10 years. Right. Which is, you know, so there is like a lot of narcos that came from like nothing. They were people that had no education. A lot of like a lot of people were like definitely indigenous people that were like treated very poorly. Sure. And and they were deprived from power. And that's what happens when you have someone that's been like, I mean, it, it, it's not always like what happens, but if someone's like abused and deprived from power and like super marginalized and they're giving a little bit of power, sometimes that power is abused. Yeah, for sure. No, I think that's something that we're talking about a lot more now. That's like a power structure and critique that I think has been in like our kind of radical oeuvre for a really long time, mm -hmm. like since maybe before we were even participants in it. But that, like, I hear conversations now regarding, like, um, police abolition predominantly, where people are like, well, what are we going to do about crime? And it's like, well, if we solve, like, these X, Y, and Z social problems, it's obviously not going to get rid of all crime. But, like, if we don't criminalize nonviolent things and we also, like, blah, 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 like, invest in communities and divest from policing, then we can give people opportunities to not have to 
um, whatever. I think it's like a similar framework, right? Yeah, of course. And I mean, like, obviously, it's not everyone's path and it's not true to everyone. But it's obviously like, you know, when, when you've had such a hard life that is like truly deprived of everything, it like sometimes it, you'll do whatever you can to like have like a little bit of stability, even if that stability is like in, in an insane kind of way. Yeah. And I mean, especially also like the, the more we learn scientifically about how intergenerational trauma mm -hmm. is like, like how cortisol during pregnancy affects babies and affects brain development and shit. Yeah. It's like, it's hard to um, feel like, a, to not feel a sense of empathy for people that are committing some pretty heinous uh, acts sometimes in terms of like how their lives ended up in taking that path. Yeah, of course. And I mean, like the reality is that trauma like trauma also like causes like for people to like pass like that trauma along you know it's mm -hmm. like very true to people who have been like sexually assaulted where like very like a lot of people who have been sexually assaulted if they haven't dealt with it in a like in a you know in like a necessary way or whatever is true to them like sometimes those same people will go and will you know also abuse other people and it's like this like really messed up kind of like you know like line of, of of people like hurting each other and and that's why it's so heartbreaking because the people who are like assaulting and doing all these things also need support and, right and that's like that's important and and you know the reality is that like this like the systems of like um like where people are just like completely like they you know they're put in jail and like the prison system just like it doesn't do anything for anyone there's like no one's getting any help everyone's just like it does worse than not give them yeah help. exactly it's like uh yeah like re-traumatizes and it's like a completely horrifying environment um yeah for sure um so you said you got into punk at like 11 or 12 yeah so my my brother Santiago, who's six years older than me, he was already like a punk kid through being like a skateboarder. Uh huh. Because I mean, like you know, I've I've told you a little bit of what my childhood was like, so it was his childhood too. Right. So my brother was definitely like he he also wasn't like I mean he's a very successful artist and he's really good at what he does. Uh, he's a muralist and a relief printer, and he, he goes by Masatl, which is like. It, it means uh, deer in uh, Nahuatl. Deer, like the like uh, the animal. The animal, yeah. Uh, which is where we're from. It's called Mazatlan, which means uh, city of deer. Okay. So, um, m you know, my brother, he didn't like institutionalized education. Sure. I mean, which I didn't either. Uh, I mean, like I was really book smart, but then I dropped out of school in seventh grade. Oh no shit. Mm hmm. And everything I know, I just taught myself how to do it. Yeah. But my brother was a punk kid. He skateboarded, and I thought he was just so cool. Yeah, sounds cool. Like, uh, and and also my my dad lived in Mexico City, and mm -hmm. my oldest brother lived in Mexico City. And honestly, he was like the closest thing I had as, as like, like he was like the close closest male figure that I had. Sure. And I don't know. I felt like very like entwined with him and like the way that like I thought he was just like everything that he was doing was very cool. And the first time that like the first punk band that stayed in our house was this band called Electro Duendes from Spain. And to this day, they're still like 
one of my favorite bands. Like I thought they were so they were so good, you know. But I was like so like I was so amazed. I was this like eleven year old like girl that went to Catholic school who felt completely out of place there. Sure. And I was seeing these people who looked insane in my house. Yeah. This is your just like in your mom's house they were staying? Yeah. And that was like such a cool introduction. And uh, when I was 12, I moved to Mexico City to live with my dad. Okay. And I mean, Mexico City is the second largest city in the world. And I was already a punk kid and there's a punk flea market. And my dad took me to the punk flea market and let me buy all the bootleg Sindios CDs that I wanted to buy. <laughs> cool. And, and it was definitely very cool. And I, you know, at that point I was already like super interested in anarchism. And my dad was like, he, my dad literally said, like, here's this Bakunin book. Like, if you're going to, like, talk about anarchism and say that you're an anarchist, you, you better read. Sure. Like, How I, old were you when he said that to you? Either 11 or 12. Jesus. But like I said, I was not a normal kid. Right. I mean, I, I love reading. Reading is one of my favorite things. And when I, we lived in Mexico City, is when, I, like, when we were the poorest. And, like, in my whole life, we lived in this apartment with my uncle, who was a filmmaker who no longer had his production company, his wife, my dad, my oldest brother, and I. And there was a two-bedroom. So it means that my dad, my oldest brother, who was nine years older than me, mm -hmm. so if I was like 11, 12, he was like 19, 20. Yeah. And we were, we were all sleeping in this like giant bed that used to be my grandparents. And, you know, and my uncle and, and his wife slept in the other room. Right. Um, which at the time it was normal, sure. you know, but obviously like it's not the most normal thing to be like 12 and sleeping like with your whole family in one in one room right but uh so i didn't really have space or privacy at all so sure. i kept books under my under the bed and one day my dad like my dad always like my dad and i have are so close but he always didn't he didn't know when i was a kid how to relate to me as a woman sure because he also only had brothers and though he was like a really good dad, he, like there was certain things that like, like getting my period was his like worst nightmare. Yeah, I can imagine. So he found, he found out that I had all these Marquis de Sade books under the bed. <laughs> <laughs> and I was 13. This is so on brand for like, it's just really like um, the young Anna that I could have imagined. <laughs> exactly. And he like, I came into the room and the, the, like the carpet was this like 1970s carpet that it smelled like hundreds and thousands of cigarettes and cigars because sure. everyone in my family smoked. And my dad was sitting in the bed with his uh, elbows on his knees, smoking a cigarette, and he looked so defeated. And I walk in and my dad's like, so I don't think these books are appropriate for your age. And I was like, sure. okay. And then he was like, okay. All right, well, I don't know. And he just, like, walked away. And that's all he could muster, you know? But I sure. know that there was, like, a lot more that he wanted to say, but he didn't know how to say. Fuck. But also, he didn't take the books away or anything like that. I've never been punished in my entire life. Whoa. You are... I know, I know a few people that have never been punished, like, that were never punished by their parents. Um, and you are unlike them in that uh, you are not, like, a like a selfish narcissist. And I wonder how it is that you didn't turn out. Well, I have two older brothers sure. and I definitely got like bullied in every single possible sure. way. 
So, which is funny because usually I feel like, I mean, I hear kids getting bullied at school and stuff like that. And though I felt like a lot of like this like big elephant in the room when it came to like our poverty and, and it, as it became more apparent as we got older, you know, because <laughs> I, I mean, I was in school with seven other girls. Right. So like we went to every sleepover, every birthday, and it was very apparent. Right. Like the wealth that was had. But also, I mean, another thing that was really weird about the way that I grew up is that I, when my, whenever my mom would leave to like give therapy in, in other cities and do workshops, I would live in my friends' houses for like three weeks. Sure. So I lived in all of these houses. Wow. With all of these families. Yeah. You know, so like for like, I mean, there was like a time that it was like a whole month that I like was like living with. And then, you know, there's some people that are really that really like me. So I would just like continue to go back whenever my mom would leave. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and like this one family, I call them like my uncle and my aunt, even though they're they really aren't. But right. I mean, that's that's just the Latino thing. And it's very true to like a lot of like non-white uh, communities, you know, but everyone's like. Oh, your aunt and your uncle who are not really your aunt and your uncle in any form, or, like shape or form. Yeah, it's funny. I call people like that my New York uncle, mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, like, uh, like he's not related to me, but he comes to Thanksgiving. Yeah, every exactly. Year or whatever, you know, um, yeah, for sure. No, I love that the non, like, the non familial kinship structure that exists even within a family unit, you know, mm -hmm. where like your parents' close friends or like your friend's parents or whatever just become sort of these, uh, caretakers and caregivers or whatever. It's really interesting. But, uh, you know, so like they had, they were very rich. They owned hotels and their kids who were my age had bodyguards. Fuck. So here nice. I am. I mean, there was a point in, in my life where we didn't have electricity for a whole year. So our neighbor let us like run a bunch of extension cords into our house. Right. Here I am being this person who's experienced like extreme poverty with a bodyguard driving me places as like a 10 year old or a nine year old. That's really surreal. It is extremely surreal. But one thing I will say, and I think, you know, this is like, like the truth is that I, I grew up with like a lot of culture in my family. Like my, my dad loves reading. My mom loved to read. Sure. And my mom, even though um, they were, we were like a very visual family. So even though like my mom was a therapist, she also really liked painting. Mm -hmm. So she always cultivated the arts in, in my house. So like that kind of stuff just came very like normal to me where like I educated myself and it wasn't it wasn't weird. Yeah. I mean, obviously, my parents, my parents are very like they're normal, you know, despite the fact that they've lived through all these like crazy hardships. So like all of these things that I would decide they were not completely be down with, but there was no way sh or like shape or form to like go like against what I was like. Like I was so like by the time that I was 11 and 12, I was like so messed up by life that there was just there was like no way of being like, all right, no, you have to stay in school. Yeah, or whatever. So, sure. you know, I finished sixth grade and then I was like, I'm not going back. I'm done. And then you went to Mexico City and then I moved to Mexico City, which is like this insanely big city. Yeah, it's huge. And I was a punk kid and, sure. you know, like I wanted to do punk kid stuff, but all these people were like in their 20s and here i am being 12 and lying about my age and saying that i'm 16 so that people will give me a little bit more validity wow 
I mean, I got my first tattoo when I was 12. Yeah, I okay. got my whole like chest done and I like when you were 12 when I was 12 and oh. I went to the tattoo shop and I was like I'm 16 like as if it would made it any better you know sure. it really didn't but like here I am like just but they did it but they did it and I like hid all these things from my parents I mean I did ask my dad to take me to my first show which is this is so funny yeah I want to hear this um so it was it was my first show was 2003 uh -huh. so like the t time period of hardcore when people were into krishna was like dying in the u.s but it was still existing in mexico okay and i was like at that point i was like really into hardcore but i was really into punk so I, that's always been like like something that i've dealt with where i'm too punk for the hardcore kids and too like hardcore for the punk kids sure. so i live in this like weird punk limbo weirdo limbo mm-hmm and so this show was at the Krishna temple. The band Undying was playing with like other like Mexican hardcore bands. And all these like hardcore kids that I had met online through like, you know, whatever, like punk and hardcore music, like, like, yeah. you know, platforms or whatever, like yeah. chats and stuff like that. They were going to be there and they were like, you should come. So my dad and I take the Metro downtown and i asked him to leave me a couple like blocks away sure because i was like no one's gonna see me with my dad I don't want my dad to which, walk me up which is so funny because you know i'm 12. right like of course my dad should be walking me to wherever yeah but i thought it was like such an insane concept i was so insulted that he even wanted to go take me downtown so my dad goes to like a coffee shop like a couple of blocks away and he spends like a couple of hours just drinking Americanos and like doing like word puzzles until he like goes pick me up from the show. You know, and this like, my dad is like very grumpy looking and people are very scared of him. Yeah. My dad is Basque and he's just like very much the idea of a Basque man. Sure. He's like a little bit heavier. He has a beard. He's like bald on the top, but has like hair on the sides. Uh -huh. He always has a cigarette or a cigar and he yeah. has like a skull on his face, you know? And he goes up and he says, Begonia, we gotta go. And Begonia is my name. Uh, like my name is Ana Begonia, but people in the US can't say my name. So I go by Ana. Right. But you know, most of the time people can't even say that. It's a, it's a terrible country that we're in. It is, it is terrible because I, I mean, I'm 30 now, I just turned 30. Uh, a week ago and I really wish that I went by my real name Begonia? but I, yeah but I'm already like an established artist right and it's it's too late like I'm not I'm not famous to to like to just be like Prince where I can just be like now I'm just like a, like a symbol and you right. gotta, and you yeah, gotta yeah. deal with it <laughs> you know happy birthday by the way thank you yeah 30 that's a good one I I feel like there's days that I feel pretty good about it and then there's days that I'm like, God damn it. Like, what happened? Like, just like with, like with time. Sure. I'm finally starting to feel, I'm like, it's gonna be my 20 year high school graduation, you know, uh, anniversary or whatever, mm -hmm. reunion uh, next year. And for some reason that has hit me in a way that like previous markings of my age have not. Mm -hmm. Where I'm just like, fuck, I'm old. But the thing is that, I mean, punks have, like, 
Peter Pan syndrome. We're like eternally young. Yeah. Even though like the people like the people in our lives that are maybe not part of punk or hardcore or whatever, they they live lives that are very like in tune of being their age. Mm-hmm. And it, and when you like come to like when you come in contact with those people, it does feel weird. Like, yeah, big time. Like the the people that I went to like school with, I mean. You still hang out? Like, you, do you have relationships with any of those seven kids? Some of them. I mean, mostly um, the kids of, like, my aunt and uncle. Right. They're, like, uh, Carolina lives in New York City, and she's, like, one year younger than me. And Carlos is a, a couple of uh, years younger than me. But they still, I mean, they send me, like, a video wishing me happy birthday. Sure. And to me, like, th- that's really nice because I, I really get along with everyone. And I, I, I like, I'm so interested in, in like people in general that I want to know like a- anything about anyone. Yeah. It's, fa- I'm fascinated by like everyone's, everyone's story. So, but so your dad walks up, speaking of stories, to the hardcore show in his yeah. like Begonia. And he's just like, you know, has like a very like angry voice. And everyone at the show is just like turns around at me immediately. And they're like, is that your dad? And I'm like, yep. You know, and I'm just like so embarrassed. But also, like, like, like I said, I think about it now, and I'm like, of course, my dad went to pick me up at the show. Right. Like, that's I, if I was a mom, I would do the same. Yeah. You know, like, uh, but at the time, it just felt like this monumental, like, total humiliation. For sure. But my dad and I took the subway back to the house, and I was very thankful that, like. He took me to my first, I mean, he took me to the, my first show and let me pretend that I, like, got there by myself. Yeah, until he got bored doing word games. Exactly. Um, what was the punk scene in Mexico City like in the early 2000s? I feel like that's right when I knew people that were in their, like, um, late teens and early 20s who had started going there on freight trains. It was insane. Yeah. I mean, it's still insane. Mexico City punks are, like, their own, like type of human like shows are like because especially when a really big band came because since mexico city is so big definitely certain punks of certain areas are are like different you know like that you might have like the more like rich areas that have like more like like fresa punks which literally translates to like strawberry punks which are like just people that grew up with money and they're like a little bit more privileged and and then you have like what's the aesthetic there? Because I I think richer kids and I think like um like uh, like kind of more art schooly or like super charged. No, there were more like I mean there was a couple of people that definitely were like like the thing is that at that time people were really into DB okay like super into DB so they were like the more clean looking DB people sure like maybe they're really into Scandinavian punk okay you know. And then there was the other people who were like from El Estado de Mexico, which is like it, this El Estado de Mexico was like another city that Mexico City ate, essentially. Mm-hmm. And those punks came from like like super marginalized communities. Like they grew up in like super tough environments. So they were super street. I mean, like these kids were like all huffing glue. You know, right. and like not giving a fuck. And those were the type of people that, I mean, there's videos of like people like 
breaking into shows where they would just all decide that they don't want to pay and that like whoever's putting the show is like a capitalist pig for like charging <laughs> like at the door uh-huh. and there's one where they actually take a bulldozer that they found in the street from like someone doing construction and they go and they like like break the doors of this warehouse and and then like hundreds of punks just like swim in Fuck. yeah it's the word for that is called portazo which is like to break the door so if yeah. you look up like you know like portazo in la ciudad de mexico you know whatever bulldozer and then you'll like find something like there's one where they find like maybe like a i think it's like a telephone pole that fell and they all they all grabbed it like you a know giant battering ram? yeah and they just like went in fuck and they all like sometimes they organize so that they could all like push themselves in to not pay right which i have so much respect for oh it's beautiful like i think it's i mean like i definitely like as a person there whose book shows like definitely understand the very frustrating aspect of that especially in mexico city because it means that you would bring sh- like bands from like europe mm-hmm. like bands from like the u.s and it would cost a lot of money especially if you were paying for their like tickets and like i'm definitely friends with everyone that booked shows down there sure but I still thought it was so hilarious. Yeah, it's a hu- I mean, it's a huge pain in the ass, clearly. <laughs> but there's just something, there's like something so beautiful about like a bunch of kids huffing glue and then hot wiring a bulldozer to break into a casualty show or whatever. I mean, if that's not punk, then what is? Right. Um, were you straight edge back then? Have yeah. you always been straight edge? I broke edge from when I was like 16 till I was like 17 almost 18 and i was horrible (laughs) (laughs) okay i wanted to fight everyone yeah you know like i like thought everyone was attractive yeah i believe that too and so like that was like i was just like this like horrible teenager that it could not be stopped that everyone thought was so much older because now i look a lot younger than my than my age but at that time i looked i mean i I was like had like so many tattoos like people could not figure out my age and i used that as my advantage you know but the the thing is that i became straight edge because i mean where i'm from i like i had such a hard relationship with drugs yeah i wondered because it just like it affected me in such a personal level I mean, like, if you come from where drugs are, like, are coming from and they, like, literally affect the way that you grew up, then you just, like, have a hard relationship with drugs. Sure. You know, and, you know, I'll say this with a trigger warning. And also what what really changed my life is that when I was 11, I was, like, raped by a man in the street who was drunk. And, you know, it, it also meant that I came to a, like, back to a house that was no one to take care of me. Right. So I just became such an angry person. And I believe that there was the, that's the worst thing that could have ever happened to me. Yeah. So then I was hitchhiking at 12, you know, and like taking all these risks because I didn't care anymore. The first time I, I saw someone, I think this story is really funny, but I, the first time that I saw someone um, smoke crack, Mm-hmm. was you know in mexico they smoke crack out of light bulbs sure you do that in new york too so um and we call it foco which literally means light bulb so we were um hitchhiking from guadalajara to maybe zacatecas which is like more central mexico 
uh, and I was with like other punk friends and I was like 13 and we we're all hitchhiking in this, uh, we were in a se semi truck and we were sitting in the back, you know, in like the bed of the semi truck. Yeah. And this guy stops and he's like, hey, like, do you mind if I just like, you know, fix myself? And I literally had no idea what anything, what he was saying meant. Right. Like I grew, like, I grew up like definitely having a very hard life, but also in some way very sheltered and protected. Sure. You know, and uh, like as much, like definitely not the same kind of shelter that people in the U.S. are. Just had never really seen someone like smoking crack. But I was in the semi truck, and this guy sits back with us, and I see him take out the light bulb, and like I'll, I'll like, you know, like. I'll always remember what like that smell like. It was it was just like like nothing that I have ever smelled before. Yeah. And I definitely had a feeling of like I shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, obviously didn't stop me. And you know, he finished smoking crack and then sat back in the, you know, driver's seat and right. then off driving. we off we went. Yeah. Fuck. Um, I feel like you, you like slid this very traumatic thing in really subtly and, and moved right past it really <laughs> fast in a way that like, we don't need to linger on that at all. I don't feel any, any need to, but I just want to, um, acknowledge the grace with which you were like introduced this, uh, super violent aspect of your life and then just like established this is the ground that we're uh like where all this stuff comes from and i am moving on you did that so gracefully and i really am just like i think i'm just so used to it because i'm not secretive with sure. it I, I mean like that was not the first time and i mean thankfully i mean sorry like hopefully it'll be like i'm 30 and i'm, I'm hoping that nothing like that will happen to me but i, I experienced a lot of sexual assault and like and up until i was like 20 like 22 from like all different people and it definitely made me a very angry person sure um i mean i'm i'm very positive and i'm very happy and i'm very loving to everyone around me but yeah. I, like i obviously have this like anger inside of me that is just like you can you definitely see it when i play music absolutely and, and i mean you have an intensity about you i think just generally yeah, definitely. And I, you know, and and I had to learn what to do with it. Yeah. And and the reason I talk about it and I don't like keep it secret is one because normalizing it has helped me so much. Absolutely. And because I I want people to not feel alienated because they've like dealt with really hard things. Because the reality is that there's more people that have that they haven't. 100%. And I feel like the the less people talk about it, the more invisible it is. And, yeah. it, and it's not not real for those people. It's there. Right. People are just carrying around pain in like a solitary and mm -hmm. silent way. But it definitely like, I mean, for me, it ex it explained a lot of why I was this like, like crazy child that I went from like being like a mathlete that like believed in God and went to Catholic school. Yeah. To not. Right. I mean, I was 11 when I stopped, like I firmly was like, I'm an atheist. And I still had my first communion because I wanted presents. Uh-huh, that makes sense. 
And so, like, the only time that I had a confession with a priest that, like, as a kid, I lied. I was like, I don't know what to say to you. So I, like, just made all this shit up. And I definitely felt super guilty because I was like, I don't, like, I don't know what to say. Like, I, I really, like, this is, like, very weird, weird to me. And, yeah. like, it feels very strange. But as I grew older and my brothers were like, oh, yeah, we lied, too. We, like didn't want to tell them were they also atheists my oldest brother is religious uh -huh. but my oldest brother is a yuppie i mean like my oldest brother is like so different than santiago and i uh -huh. but he also grew up street like us right so like i mean he just had to like you know when you grow up when you grow up very poor you either go one way or the other you either embrace it and you learn how to be mm -hmm. or you try to do whatever you can to not be there again. Right. And Santiago and I, we became punks. And the reality is that punk romanticizes being poor. And we're like, we're, we're fucking poor, so this is our people. Yeah. And for me, it's def it was definitely like, like having friends that had similar experiences made me feel so like seen and understood. Mm -hmm. And it was important to me and and, and that was really funny because I, I wasn't until i was like 14 and i was i was like sexually assaulted by this guy in the scene that like i was so disappointed i was like these are the people that are supposed to be protecting me right these are my people like i just i i felt so crushed like in a way that was like beyond just being like like crushed because i was sexually assaulted it was like this type of disappointment and being let down that was so deep to me mm -hmm. and you know like and, and then i feel like that added a whole other like layer of thick skin to me at a very young age you know i was i mean i was 14. yeah i mean that's a that's like a singular kind of betrayal right when mm -hmm. you are like uh like it's it's driven so far like it's just driven home that you are vulnerable in the world at such a young age and then and that you will be targeted and then you go and you seek out what you think is like a safe place and then you are like you also discover that you are vulnerable and will be targeted in that safe place i think that's like that's a kind of um yeah just like awareness that i think is is harrowing yeah and it was like it was very disappointing to me like i just didn't understand what what to do with it you know and for me it was like um what happened when i was 11 i didn't talk about it until i was 15. i didn't tell my parents because i wanted to protect them i sure. felt like they were gonna like you know i felt like they were like it was gonna hurt and it did yeah when i finally talked to them it really really did but that's how i dealt with things i just didn't like didn't speak about this like very hard things that i was dealing with and i and i still do i still like function in the same way where like by the time that i finally tell someone how i'm feeling i've been like like really sitting with it for like a long time yeah yeah i'm trying to change that about myself it's right it's now. hard it's really hard it, and it's especially hard when you finally open up and you don't get which I mean, like, this is something that I need to grow on. But when I don't get, like, 
the answers that I that I wanted or like mm -hmm. the validity or like someone being like I hear you and I feel you then it makes me not want to talk and it's very heartbreaking yeah and that's why I like you know I don't care who people are if someone like reaches out to me for any kind of help I'm always going to be there for them I'm not scared of people's feelings people's feelings are not a burden to me they're mm -hmm. not uncomfortable they're not anything I, I, I'm always going to talk to people yeah yeah that's um that's something that's been clear in my friendship with you that mm -hmm. like you are someone who is uh like willing to put yourself in uncomfortable places or like you know kind of step out of conventional comfort zones i'll say um because you just said it's not uncomfortable for you so i wouldn't want to um you know use a different framework for that but like uh yeah you definitely just seem like someone that's willing to do that hard work and it's not surprising to me that it's like uh, an empathy built on trauma of course and and i mean like it took me a long time to get to this point mm -hmm. but i'm proud about being that person and I'm proud that my my trauma made me a very empathetic person. For sure. Yeah. How did you end up? Um, you went to UNAM, right? No, I, I um, so I didn't go to college until or like to, you know, like. Like any sort of like higher learning until I was 24. Oh, no shit. And I went to um, film school in Pittsburgh oh no way is that why you came here uh a little bit and no uh I mean at the time I was married and right. my, my husband and I uh we had a lot of friends here and we he had a very similar upbringing as I did I mean like he is from New Hampshire but he him and I found each other in that way and we had had lives where I mean like I how did you guys meet we met in Columbus. I used to live there at this uh, punk house called the Legion of Doom. Right. And I used to book book shows and I booked his band and my band played and so, I hated him. Yeah. Let's back up a little bit. We'll get back there. Yeah. But how did you get from how do you get from Mexico City to Columbus? So I've lived in so many places. Right. I lived in TJ. I lived in Monterey. I lived in Guadalajara. I used to book Lady Fest in Mexico. Oh, no shit. Uh, I booked it in, in Monterey. I mean, not just by myself, but right. with other people, but. I booked it in Monterey. I was 15, the first Lady Fest that we booked there. And then I decided to move the fest to TJ. Sure. So it was like the first Lady Fest that TJ had. And that's when I, I was 18. And I was already like, kind of like jaded with booking. <laughs> and yeah, I was it like, sucks. because I mean, booking a fest, you dedicate like half of your year to it, if not more. Mm -hmm. And I mean, obviously to me, it was awesome because I, I mean, I wasn't going to school or doing anything. Right. So. But there's this notion that if you if you take any money for this thing that you spent six months just like working really hard for, that you are like a leech. Of course. Or that you're doing it to be like for like lucrative purposes, which is right. insane. It's truly insane. Like, I mean, like I've like learned with age to like give myself the necessary like value of my work. Mm -hmm. And that's very hard. You know, I think it's it, that's like very, very hard, but I'll, I'll go back to that. Um, but after le like living in TJ, so this is really funny because I so I had gone to like the border to this like really big uh, like protest camp that happened in Mexicali 
in 2007 to protest the the border mm-hmm. and it was like it was called no borders camp and it was like it happened half in mexico and half in the u.s sure so i, I made up like met a lot of people i met uh, one of my friends there and he messaged me at, like randomly like a year later and he was like hey this is weird but i think i'm gonna work on warp tour and gonna have this like uh like anarchist table with like like literature and stuff like that uh, I like inherited this distro. Would you be down to do it? And I was—I've never been to Warp Tour. That was not my kind of music. Right. Um, I mean, and definitely I like. What some, year is this? Two thousand and eight. I can't even imagine what Warp Tour in two thousand eight is. Oh my god. It was so awful. Yeah. It, like Katy Perry was one of the acts. Oh wow! Because she was dating one of like the this guy that played in this band, Jim Class Heroes. So he he was like, I'm not going to tour without my girlfriend. So she okay. was like the act and like every single queer people like in the fest were pissed because she had that song. I kissed a girl and I like, yeah, it. so they made shirts that said I kissed a girl because I wanted to not because Katy Perry told me to. Wow. And uh, so we had like I we weren't on this like month long tour. Which actually is really funny because um, we had one of Dave's trucks, Dave Rosenstrauss, and that's no how shit. that's how I met him, and that's how I like the first time I came to Braddock. It was two thousand and eight, and it's so different than what it is now. Yeah, I mean, for sure, it was really abandoned there. Yeah, um, and so it was definitely yeah, I don't know. It was like definitely <laughs> a very weird decision that I made, but my reasoning behind it was. I know a lot of young people whose lives were changed by going to Warp Tour. Sure. And it was during the, like, um, when Obama and McCain were running for presidency. And it was very, very saturated with politics, which was very weird. I mean, this is like this, like, to me, it was very weird because Mexican punk was really political and like in a, you know, like anarchist kind of way. Right. So, like, I, I've never voted in my entire life. Um because voting is not real in Mexico. Right. I mean, let's be honest, it's not real in a lot of places. And yeah. I understand the value of like voting, um, but it, it was just not an option for me. So to like, for me to see that, to see like people giving like 12 year olds McCain and Obama stickers and then <laughs> putting them under like, cause it was like, it was under the like umbrella, you know, if you're like 14, in four years, you'll be able to vote. like vote. So if I win and I'm running in four years, you'll like me. Or maybe you'll have an influence on your parents or like your older brother or sure. whatever. And I thought it was disgusting. Yeah, that's gnarly. So I, I felt good about like having this alternative, but also like it was definitely out of like my like mental health expense because I was like miserable. Yeah, fuck. I was like, I don't understand any of this. This is not punk to me. Yeah, that's wild. I will say that the last week of tour, mm-hmm. I saw a bunch of bands that I really liked. I love the Dickies, and the Dickies uh, had not been a band for years, and yeah. they played for a week straight, and I was like stoked. All about it. I was it. like, fuck yes. And then I, um, I can't remember what T- like TSOL played. M- Mike Watt played with Kira. Sure. So like that, that kind of stuff. I was like, this is cool. Yeah. Um, but then there was like 
the germs playing with the actor guy and that was real disgusting oh that's wild i got a um i have a germs burn from that tour <laughs> nice that's like uh that my friend got from uh lorna nice yeah the uh wow i if i had i don't know how many guesses it would have to take for me to get to warp tour as the reason that you came to the u.s yeah, I mean, it was weird. I mean, like, really, I had lived in Austin when I was 16. Okay. For, like, a couple of months. Sure. And, and then I, like, lived in San Diego when I was booking Ladyfest. Uh-huh. But then it was because I met my really good friend when I was working. Like, we were all, like, doing this thing together. And she lived in Columbus. And I was like, I'm going to go visit you. Yeah. And I just decided to stay. It was also the first real winter that I've ever experienced. Whoa. And my friend Mickey to this day, like, makes fun of the fact that she came down in her house and found me with three sleeping bags. And I was like, I don't understand what's going on. Why is it so cold? Yeah. I'm from a beach town. Like, what the fuck? And I don't know. It was, like, really bizarre. And she was just like, are you okay? And I was like, no, <laughs> not okay. This is bad. Also, like... Winter in a punk house is especially bad because they don't turn the heat on. Yeah, it was definitely bad. And I stayed in I stayed in Columbus for, I mean, I was 18 when I uh, moved there and I was 22 when I moved out. Or like I was 20, like 23 when I when I moved out of Columbus. And I lived at the Legion of Doom for all those years. Right. And what I really liked about being there is, I mean, it's really sad that Columbus music scene really sucks now sure but at that time it was really good and being able to book shows and have stability like i never like that was the longest i had lived in one place since i was 11 right and to me that was really wild yeah and and it and it helped me become an artist for sure so i i really give that time that like that i allowed myself to have a lot of value because i was no not running away anymore yeah, and I mean, Legion of Dune at that point had been a house for like... It's been, they've been a punk house since the 70s. Yeah, oh, no shit. Yeah, they, like it was fi- like finally called Legion of Doom in the early 90s, but it's been a, like a weirdo punk house since like the 1970s. There's all these like insane stories about the Legion. No fucking way. I knew that it had been a house like that had shows since the 90s, but I didn't realize that it had been... Wow. Um, but yeah, so in terms of stability, it's like, you don't have to worry about this house going anywhere. It's not like... Yeah. And also, I, I mean, my rent, including utilities, was $100. <laughs> like, I sold underwear, dirty underwear on Craigslist, and yeah. I was able to, like, support my lifestyle. Yeah, that's amazing. Which was great. I mean, all I did was, like, that's how I learned how to draw. Like, I had all this free time. I started making punk flyers, and then I started making, like record covers and like tape covers sure and and that's how i really i mean i've always drawn i mean my 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 mom really like would draw with me and that was like really big but like becoming an artist and like obviously it took me many years for me to say that i'm an artist and until this day i'm still very uncomfortable with the term it's hard but yeah i mean that's how it started because i was this kid with like paying a hundred dollars like for rent and I just was able to like really focus on it yeah wow that's amazing mm-hmm. and so then you meet your husband who you hate yeah I hated him I thought he was just like this like 
very pompous white dude. Sure. And it turned out that he was like a very smart, very sensitive human being. Sure. And I was like, like immediately drawn to this human. Uh, I never wanted to get married. I thought getting married was weird. It, the day that I got married, my mom was like, I never thought you were going to get married. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm divorced now. <laughs> or like, I'm, I'm, we're still married, but I've been separated because legally I can't get divorced because I, it, like, I was deported for a long time. So right. uh, it's, in, in a year, I, I can go through the whole process. For sure. Um, um, when were you deported? I was deported the year that I moved to Pittsburgh. So it was 2015. Okay. And I had gone, like we were finally stable. Cause we, I mean, when we, while dating, we lived in New Hampshire a bunch of times. We lived in New York. We lived in Mexico city. Like we came back mm-hmm. and we finally were like in a good place. Cause also uh, like so- something that was like very important is why we moved so much is because I was in the verge of dying. Like I had, when I was 22, I had pancreatitis. Oh shit. And I had pancreatitis twice. Jesus. And I just like, my health was really hard. Like my, I had like, um, I was getting like liver failure. Like the, the doctors, you know, when doctors are like, you might die. You're like, okay, well, I don't know what to do with that information. I don't know. Doctors never said that to me. I can't even imagine. So, I mean. You know the punk community is amazing in this way they like everyone did a like gofundme and they like and then i moved to mexico so that i could get uh affordable health care sure so we like my husband and i were living in mexico city he's uh like from the u.s he doesn't speak spanish and we're like in the second largest city in the world so like for him that was also very hard because he was trying to navigate this whole new yeah. space but we finally come to pittsburgh we are like stable i'm like going to like school for film, which is what I wanted to do my whole life. Uh, and I'm very happy that I'm doing it. And I go to Mexico to visit my parents to be like, I'm going to start my like process to become, uh, to get a green card. I'm not going to be able to come back for like a year or so. And in the Phoenix airport, I get a bad uh, border patrol. This like white guy. And he's like, no, like, no, uh, you're married. No, you should have already started your like, like immigration process. So he decides to hold me because I'm married and because it's illegal for me to be married without having started this process, which is, he just wanted to fuck with me. Right. And I mean, I had every right to like taken away from me. I asked for a lawyer. I was not given one. I asked to speak with my husband. Uh, I, like they didn't allow me to talk to him until like a long time. Uh, he he was gonna go meet up with me, and they told him that he couldn't. Which it could have, if he did, it could have saved me from like right. being deported. But you know, obviously, they were not gonna be like, "This is how you can get out of this." Yeah, no, they're not gonna let that happen. Um, Jesus. Because of the pancreatitis, I have a really bad uh, potassium deficiency, and I have to take uh, like prescription potassium at least once a day. They were not; they didn't give me my medicine. They didn't feed me. They didn't give me water, and they abused me while I was in like in, like being held. And 
it was it, it got so bad that I was hospitalized. So you know, this like migras sent me to the hospital. And You're in Phoenix at this point. I'm still? In, yeah, I'm in Phoenix. They sent me to the hospital, and you know they handcuffed me to the bed. And there's like this like huge border patrol sitting like at my bedside. And every single time a nurse comes in, she looks at me with such disgust because they're just like, she's just a criminal. And they ask the border patrol if he's okay. Are you okay? Do you feel safe? Meanwhile, I'm like 115 pounds and like dying, like dying and yeah. like handcuffed to a bed, like completely heartbroken. And they're asking if he's okay, if he feels safe. Jesus. And I was deported. I was like, um, like they sent me in a plane to Mexico City, which is not where my parents lived, but that was the easiest and fastest way for me to get there. And I have a lot of friends there. So one of my best friends went to pick me up and, you know, I was like completely destroyed. And then I, I went to Hermosillo, which is where my parents currently live, which is in the Sonoran Desert. And I like started living with them for two years. Meanwhile, my husband in Pittsburgh was like working like 24 seven to get me back. Right. Cause there was all this lawyer fees. And what really sucked is that like, at the time there was not the amount of awareness there is about immigration. Yeah. So I think he felt really alone here because people didn't understand what was happening. I mean, like his wife is gone for two years. He's like working 24 seven. And it's, it, it really, really like broke him. And it definitely, I mean, it's like the main reason why we're not together anymore. Sure. But, uh, you know, I was living in, in Hermosillo and I was trying to just survive. But I was like, to say that like my, like I was having really bad, like PTSD, like related issues is to say it like, is just touching the sub, like just barely touching the subject. And right. then like, like, I was so messed up and I was just trying to go through like the motions of like how, how to deal with this. Um, and then in that time, I, I was awarded uh, an artist residency um, that the state of like the art institute in the state of Sonora paid for. And then I, I, I went and lived in Iceland. Okay. And, you know, and all the work that I did in, during that time frame was definitely, like, just, like, this, like, devastating, like, yeah. work. Like, it was all, like, this really sad artwork. For sure. And, and I think that, like, what's interesting, you know, I, I talked about, like, being in a limbo when I was, like, too punk for, like, the hardcore kids and, like, yeah. too hardcore for the punk kids. And that happened to my art. Like, my art became too fine arts for the punks and to punk for the fine arts, you know, where yeah. I had to like, yet again, figure out how to assert myself and how to make room for myself and be like, this is the space that I need and I'm going to take it. Which is, yeah. I think it's a hard thing to do. Like it was hard. I mean, it was hard for me. No one, no one wants to give you that space. No. You just have to figure out how to take it. Yeah. So how long were you in Iceland? I lived there for like four months. Okay. And then I went back to Mexico. Um, and so this, this was like August of 2016. Uh huh. 
And in October of 2016, um, my mom and I went to Ciudad Juarez and my ex-husband and met us there for my hearing because they don't do it in like the city that you live or anything like that. Right. And it's like a really messed up process. Like, yeah, you have to get like, like um, every single like shot, you have to get it and you get it all at once. So I was having like really bad fever from like getting like, like shot for like measles or you know whatever sure. like all all of them at once and you then have all this autoimmune stuff going on and then you get like full like you get like your eyes checked you get your like you go to a psychiatrist you get everything checked all at once and I think if there's something wrong they can be like oh, no fuck because then they're like you're just gonna go to the U S to like try to like take what like as if healthcare was free yeah it's horrible here um the healthcare so that was like really bizarre to me um, yeah. there's like a funniest like obviously i always like find something funny amongst those things but like sure. she had, like this woman had me completely like naked in this room and she was like writing down every single tattoo that i have so like <laughs> you know and obviously anyone that's been arrested knows that that's how it goes if you get arrested or if anything legal you just get stripped down and then they like write down your tattoos because then they can recognize you with those right in the future so I'm a huge Simpsons fan, as honestly most Mexicans. And uh-huh. I can like quote most old episodes. And I have this tattoo that says, uh, I'm already dead, which is one of my favorite episodes. Barney Gumble decides to make like this art, like art film. And it's like a mixture of like the, like the show, the critic and the Simpsons merging. Uh huh. So he makes this beautiful black and white like art film where like it's about his alcoholism and how like he like drinks himself to death and he put there's this like rose on this like beer bottle and he says you know don't cry for me i'm already dead so i have that tattooed in my like leg and it says i'm already dead Uh so i got sent to the psychiatrist and they were like so you want to die and i was like it's a simpsons tattoo like i don't know how like and thankfully, the, like the, this 22-year-old psychiatrist was like, "Oh, I've seen that episode. Sure, you're fine." <laughs> Holy shit! But I was like, "This is crazy." Right. This is crazy that of all things, my Simpsons tattoo the is Simpsons get, tattoo getting is me get in, trouble. in trouble. Fuck. So finally, I do all of that, and the next day, I have my hearing, and obviously, I dress the part, you know. Yeah. Um, and uh, like. My husband's with me and like he's also dressed apart and then we find out that no one's allowed inside with me and i have every single email that we've sent each other when we met each other sure. every letter every picture like i have this packet that is full of every single thing proving that our relationship was real right and i go up there and i'm hearing people devastating crying getting crushed getting their lives completely destroyed by like whatever decision this person has made and I'm just sitting there right. with my heart in my stomach. Because if I get told that I can't come back, then it's two more years. Before you can try again. Yeah. So I'm just sitting there and just like not being able to think straight, but also like studying like like the, the words that I'm going to say to not fuck up and yeah. mess up and say the wrong thing. And I go up to this woman and... 
She doesn't look at my packet. She doesn't look at anything that I have. Um, she tells me that the border patrols have a band. They're like, oh yeah, we have a band, we practice. And then, you know, she was like, you play in bands, that's cool. And then she's like, all right, you're, you're good. So after two years, you know, I'm, I mean, like, I'm glad. But at the same time, I'm insulted. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I have every single, like, everything in this, like, package. And it, I've waited two years for this interview. And you just tell me that the Border Patrols have a band and that I'm good. It's, it's fucking horrifying. Because, I mean, that, I think, really highlights how arbitrary all of this shit is. Yes. Right? Like, the your deportation in the first place was so arbitrary, like, clearly so arbitrary. And then your, like, admittance back here is equally arbitrary in a way that is, yeah, that's got to feel insulting. And, like, just, like, um, like, how do you make sense of that? Exactly. And, you know, but, but I was happy. I mean, like, sure. fuck it. It doesn't matter. Like, I got it easy. And here I am. But... It took so much time. It's two years out of my life that I can't get back. Yeah. And all, and obviously it took so much more from me than just two years. And that's, that's the truly heartbreaking thing. Is that people don't realize that, like, people's lives get so incredibly destroyed. Like, it, it, to the point that there's no going back. Well, it's like, and it's not just your life, right? I mean, not that your life isn't mm -hmm. important, but I think this is like a, a piece of, I feel like I am, I am from a place that has people from all over. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that someone's citizenship or a family member's citizenship might be, um, might be uh, in some sort of limbo or like in uh, like a tenuous precarious legal position is not um, that surprising to me. Yeah. But I feel like in other, you know, like you said here, for instance, your ex-husband didn't feel like um, he was supported in terms of people understanding what it was that was you guys were going through. And it's like, I feel like in a place like this, where like there's not the same sort of populations of recently arrived mm -hmm. uh, people, that's like the awareness of, it's not just, it's not just your life that's impacted, right? Like it's, um, this, like what happened to you is, fucking awful and shouldn't happen to anyone but like your parents had to exactly. had to change their plans because you had to come home all of a sudden your ex-husband is like toiling away whatever like his life is impacted he's also lost two years of his life yeah, in some ways exactly. you know and like the tentacles of that if, if you guys had children god forbid but like exactly yeah the and and to think that this that much that much impact is decided because um, some guy at Phoenix airport had a bad day or is a racist and some fucking judge liked your tattoos or whatever is like to have it really bring home how arbitrary the whole system is, uh, I think makes the cruelty feel so much more unnecessary right yeah exactly i mean like that's why like obviously i was like happy but i like but i was also like pissed yeah and you know and like like it's so heartbreaking for me to like see like you know like these kids who like i mean was it was like a couple of weeks ago that like i see decided that they were gonna like release the children that were like being held in cages yeah and 
you know, my immediate response was like, but what about their parents? Like those kids are going to go into a foster system that doesn't give a fuck about them. Right. Who's going to raise those kids? Like, like, are you going to put like way more, like, why are you like raising these kids in like even more of a trauma environment? Like, it's not enough that they had to live in like this horrible situation that are extremely dangerous. Like they're getting like sprayed. They're getting like, their like throats are bleeding. They're like sleeping on the floor. They're not being fed. They're like in the middle of a pandemic. Like, how much abuse can these kids get? And now you're going to put them into a system that is not going to care about them? Like, like you know, people were like, oh, this is like, like so good, they're letting them out. But I was like, immediately my response was like, without their parents, then this is just even more abuse. Mm-hmm. And, and, it's, and it's obviously like, you know, like you said, it's not just their lives. It's like so many people's lives get affected by this like thing. And, you know, I have, like, so many, like, like, my POC people, like, my, like, friends that I've, like, talked about this. And it's, like, with everything that's happening, happening, um, like, politically right now, with, like, like, people being so tired of, like, black people getting killed, like, mm-hmm. so tired of, like, this racial injustice, like, people just being just so tired. It is so hard for me to see, like, white people pretending to care. You know, because it's transparent. Like, the performative aspect of it is transparent. And, like, sure, you can be like, but they're trying. And, yeah, like, I can acknowledge that. But for us, it's so hard. Like, it's so hard to see these people, like, never had spoken, like, like for me specifically, like never spoken a single word about immigration. Mm-hmm. Now being like, they have kids in cages. Well, yeah, they've had them in they've cages for years. Cages. Yeah. Like, and it's not that you just found out about it. It's that you decided to care now, mm-hmm. and that choice that you can choose to care, whenever you want to choose to care, is fucked up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is something I've been talking about. Becca and I have been talking about a lot, and I've been talking a lot about with my friends. But the ways that the sort of like extrajudicial policing tactics that are being used um, against protesters that are like bringing everybody up in arms and saying like, oh, America's becoming a fascist state or whatever. And it's like uh, America has been a fascist state for people from anywhere south on this continent. America has been a fascist state for Muslims. Mm -hmm. America has been a fascist state for black people, for, you know, take your pick, how many years? Like America, you know what I mean? Like all of this being disappeared in a van by the warrant squad or whatever, Mm -hmm. that's like, you know, I saw this like um, viral tweet going around or Instagram story that's like for, you know, for people that don't know about the Warren Squad, like the NYPD, because they just, you know, fucking took that woman off the street. And it's like, I remember the Warren Squad coming to people, like friends' houses looking for them. You know, like I I feel like there is an, a lack of awareness that is, it is really um, frustrating to be like, why weren't you, why didn't you notice this when it was happening before? Exactly. But also, no, I think to your point, which I I was kind of stepping adjacent to, which is that like with um, 
issues with immigration and shit, like people did know they were happening mm -hmm. and just were choosing not to um, spend their time advocating for that. Yeah, and it's it's really hard. It's exhausting. Like there's like every person that I've talked to. I mean, like, you know, I, I work with uh, youth in Braddock. Right. And uh, and, you know, 99 percent of my like the youth that I work with are black. Mm -hmm. I literally have one white student <laughs> who I, I really love him. He's great. But like I've asked him, like, how do you feel about people suddenly caring and you know like teenagers are so honest yeah and in, in an unapologetic way that i respect so much oh yeah and i'm so glad that i can have these conversations with them and that they trust me enough to be able to have these conversations because i feel like winning the, the like trust of teenagers is so hard probably one of the hardest things that i've ever had to do sure um it's fucking rough it is rough um but you know, they, they told me that they like they were like, yeah, I'm happy people care, but also where were they? And like, yeah. you know, I've, we've been making all these like scenes and like relief prints and, and, and like artwork and it's all political and it definitely doesn't come from me. Right. Like They choose what to make. Like they choose to like pick the subjects that they are choosing to pick. Yeah. Like I'm not telling them what to make at all. And it's because it is important to them. And, and because they are tired and they get super targeted. Yeah. Like as like young black, like teenagers, like who are like, they're like seen as thugs. And that's the reality. And, yeah. and it's, it's really messed up, you know? And like uh, the organization that I work with is called the Braddock Youth Project. And their slogan is to bring the kids to the street. And I love that. Because visibility is so important. And because every single kind of like youth, like of color program is always like taking kids off of the street. Right. Like, and we don't want that. They should be in the streets because visibility is important. Right. Also, like, that's what kids should be doing is being outside. Yeah. In the street. Playing. And I mean, like, you know, they, they make art and they garden and they mentor like younger kids. Yeah. And they should... It should be visible. They're doing such good work for their community. Yeah, for sure. Like, I want everyone to see it. Like, that's what, that's, that visibility is important. So, like, I think, like, those words, taking, like, youth of the street, taking kids of the street are so, like, archaic. Like, like, it, it's awful. And, and I'm so glad to be able to work in a space where, where that exists. Yeah, that's beautiful. And what about your own work? I mean, I, we are, one week away from like ending summer program and i haven't done anything for yeah. my own personal like, for sure and and i knew that it was going to be like that i mean i'm working two jobs i'm also doing like a writing residency uh -huh. and that's how i function i'm like i mean yeah, for a long overload. for for a long time that's how i dealt with like my trauma i mean that's very real uh-huh like yeah. like make myself as busy as possible so i don't have to think about all the things that haunt me yeah, I mean, if you're always working and then too tired and just have to pass out. Exactly. But I feel I'm in a better place, which is great to say as yeah. I turn 30. Yeah, um, that is great to say. And, you know, like I, I'm doing this because I, I really love it. I, I really love the youth. And when the summer ends, I'll be able to, like, focus on, on like, my work a little mm -hmm. bit more but also we're in the middle of a pandemic i mean like right shows don't exist art shows don't exist yeah like it 
you know, it's it's all weird. Yeah, the world is so fucking crazy. But also, like, for the first time in my entire life, and this is, like, a really big deal to me, which, like, I've been talking a lot about it, but this is the first time in my life that I have economic stability because I have a new job. Uh-huh. And the reason I talk about it is because, like, that is how big it is. I, I cried for, like, two days straight when I found sure. out that I got this job because it means that I'll be able to support myself being an artist because I've always had, like, insane jobs. Like, I worked... You know, I would work during the day with the youth. I would make art and then I would work at a bar in Pittsburgh from like, you know, 9 p.m. till like 3 a.m. And that's just how like how I function to be able to like make art and to be able to have that stability to have. I've never had health insurance. I'm like a DIY doctor because I like, you know, (laughs) for 30 years I haven't had health insurance. So I'm like, you broke an arm. I got you. What, What? You know, bring me some like a stick. Like some cloth, we, we we were doing it. So I like to be able to have that for me is so huge. Sure. It, and it's and it's funny, you know. It's like you don't realize how privileged you are to be able to have those things until you're completely deprived from them. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also important for you to talk about. I mean, like there's like a political utility in talking about that you are 30 and just now experiencing financial stability for the first time in your life because I feel like, you know, I I am like aware that that is people's position mm-hmm. or whatever uh, because I had friends from much different backgrounds than me uh, forever. But like, that is not my experience. And I think many people f- of my experience, uh, which like was, you know, I had a pretty posh childhood um, they, like a lot of the kids from my neighborhood have no idea what it's like to, um, or like probably don't know anyone that's never had health insurance. Yeah. And I think, um, just like it's important to talk about, um, trauma to like demystify living with trauma. I feel like it, it, there's like something valuable in sharing those sorts of experiences to like demystify that there is like oh this is just like a a thing that many humans actually deal with and like you know i think that most of the world is well aware of yeah for sure and also like i like talking about my own experiences because i like for people to not feel alone right like i want other people to be like you can be 30 and and finally have financial stability yeah And, and like and and it'll like if you work hard enough you know and like like it might come to you and i like definitely like tell my youth like yeah i didn't go to school yeah i taught myself how to do it and i've been i've had a lot of my like artist friends like you came and talked to my youth about podcasting that was awesome and also like i like to mention like how how these people that i'm like bringing to talk to the youth got to the point that they got you know like how did you get into this because i think that for them things are so impossible and, and I know that because they were so impossible to me. So, you know, like they, like there's this huge uh, stigma that like if you're like a person of color and, you know, you, you won't go to school. So that like usually people of color have like a lot of pressure of going to school, like especially this younger, like younger generations because mm-hmm. they're like, the only, like they might be the only person in their household that is like ever going to go to college. Right. But they might not want to go to college. Right. And like, 
I think it's a terrible idea. I mean, like, obviously, like, for some people, it's really good. But I think it's a terrible idea to, like, go into college at 18. You don't know what you want. I, like, know so many people that don't know what they want to do when they're 18. And then they, like, decide that they want to be a nurse. And then they go to school for, like, three years. And they're like, I don't want to do this. And right. it's not until they're, like, in, like late 20s that they finally decide what they want to do. Right. And you rack up a bunch of debt in the process. Exactly. So I, I like to be transparent with them and be like... If you don't want to go, you can still do the things that you want to do. That's so interesting. Yeah. Because obviously, like, you know, what we want is to be like, no, you can go to go, you can go to college and, and like, you can do it and go to college, you know? And right. Like, but I, I want to, I like being honest with them and be like, I, I, I stopped going to school in seventh grade and here I am. I did it. DIY, baby. Do you want to talk about anything else? Can you talk about your band a little bit? Sure, we can talk about it. Um, well, I play in this uh, hardcore band called De Rodillas, uh -huh. um, which means to be on your knees. Uh huh. Um, which is, to me, it's like such a powerful, like, because it, it goes in so many ways, yeah. you know? Um, but the reason it's like a phrase that resonates so much to me is because um, there's this saying that says uh, that, you know, you were rather die standing than like mm -hmm. to live on your knees and i you know i've always felt that and with everything that i've like lived i've, I've always felt that and like it was such a like it, it was like such i don't know like like a, there was so much symbolism into it i mean like i grew up having to kneel for being like like in catholic school sure like kneeling is such a like like i think it's supposed to like be humbling but like like kneeling can be also so humiliating yeah you know like like there's people standing above you so but also like i mean kneeling can also be political i mean there's like the black nfl players taking mm -hmm. a knee you know so like it just means so many things sure um but i mean i we started this band because I like I was so angry, you know, and like I like my friend Cassie and John and Dan played in the band and I like them all so much. Yeah. Um, and John is also Mexican. And, you mm -hmm. know, like we just have like this connection that like revolves around being Mexican. There's not a, like a big Mexican population in Pittsburgh. No, there's not. And, you know, like John and, and I, like we worked in the same building. He had his record store above the coffee shop that I worked at. And mm -hmm. we just like we became such good friends. And I mean, he's definitely one of like my best friends. And, and like, I mean, and Dan and Cassie were also like really good friends of mine. But like John and I had this like, like understanding mm -hmm. that to me was so important because I didn't have it here. I mean, like now I, I, I know a lot more Latinos, but I mean, like. I come from a place that it's all Latinos. Right. You know, like, to me, like, that is so, like, it's so hard. I, like, miss it so much. I miss my, like, my country constantly. Sure. I miss speaking Spanish. Like, I miss, I miss, I miss being in a place where I'm truly understood. Mm-hmm. So, I just felt like it was important to, to, like, have that kind of music out there. But it definitely... I had a lot of criticism of how angry it was. Really? Yeah. From who? I mean, you don't need to name names, but like from punks or like... Yeah, be 
because you know like people felt like like do i really want to put this like out there this like anger out there but and then i was like but to me that was like so hard because i was like the answer is yes the yeah, answer also isn't that the whole point of hardcore that you exactly. get to put all that anger out there exactly but also because people think that anger is negative and i don't see anger as negative like i see anger as what fuels me to create positive things sure like anger can be reckless and ang obviously anger can be like violent but yeah. like i'm a brown woman I live in a, like, like, I've lived so much injustice. I have so many things to be angry about. Like, I, and, and it also, like, my anger doesn't define me, but right. it's important. It's part of me. It's like, it's like when people say, like, I don't see color. Like, that, that's one of, like, well, to me, that's, like, the, one of the most racist things you can yeah. say to me because I want you to see me as brown. It's my identity. I want you to see me as Mexican, as an indigenous. It, it's my fucking identity. I don't want to be seen as, like, nothing. Like, be, like, completely stripped of who I am. My right. struggles are different than other people's struggles. Yeah. So I, I felt like putting that anger out there was fucking important. Oh, yeah. It's also, like, um, I think it's indicative of whose anger is valuable or perceived as, uh, like, worthy of art, right? Because, yeah. like, no one is telling Harley Flanagan not to be so angry or fucking whoever, you know? Definitely. Um, I don't know why I only think about the Chromex, <laughs> but um, but you know what I mean. Like, there's people. There's like such a robust history of like white men being so angry, and that's like that is just like the legacy of hardcore, and it's unquestioned. But uh, a brown woman, I yeah, I I guess I I'm shocked. Yeah. I always just saw Dero Diaz. You like have track pants on and an undershirt mm -hmm. and you're stomping around and like definitely not trying to, I don't see color it, but like I see you in a, in a lineage of other hardcore front people that had track pants and an undershirt and were stomping around and pissed. Yeah. And like, you're just pissed about other stuff. And that's what, that's what makes it fucking compelling. Um, it is shocking to me that, wow, that sucks. I'm sorry that people said that to you. That's bullshit. Well, it's, it's weird. I've, I've always been a person that I have to really, like, I have to really, like, make space for myself. Sure. Like, and it's like, I don't know why that is, you know? Like, I don't know why, like, the space is not being, like, given to me. Yeah. I have to take it and I just like had to accept that and it definitely breaks my heart like I wish people trusted me more and I don't mean like I mean my, like like people trust me and like but like trust my vision or trust right. what I want to do or who I am like it's hard to be a person of color you know if you're angry it's a, it's a like stereotype right you're just like another black or brown like person who's angry you know, like, it's just like, that's the stereotype. Right. But it just, that, that strips you from the reasons why you're angry. Uh-huh. Like, it, that's just, like, minimizes why you're angry. To, so that people feel more comfortable. It's all about other people's comfort. And I'm sick of other people's comfort. Like, I, I don't, I don't want it. I don't give a shit. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what it's about. But, and I, I miss it. I miss playing shows. Yeah. Like, I miss seeing my friends and I miss, like, I miss 
playing shows and it's like you seem like you really thrive in that environment like not just on stage but all, like the whole everything around it sitting at the door for a little bit work in the room doing small talk like you just seem really i love having a job it like yeah. takes me away from like standing awkwardly because dude give me a task yeah exactly i will always take a job so that i don't have to like stand because i'm like i'm such a scared person and people don't see me like that right people don't see me as a person that, that is like scared and like small and like soft and all of these things usually my describers are like strong like resilient like survivor all of these things and sure. i am all those things sure but i'm also this like person who's really scared and i have a lot of anxieties and i can be awkward and like right like i can be all of these things and like i'm someone who's like sometimes really scared coming up to people and talking to them and people think that i'm just like this like giant extrovert yeah. When, when really I'm just like very nervous when I like first meet someone and like I like overthink everything and like like I don't know how to like do the things and you know so like that's why having a job makes me feel better absolutely because I can continue to be you know just pretending that I'm not all of these things And that is it. That's Sindios, Alerta Antifascista, uh, off the record, Alerta Antifascista, which if you're not familiar, fucking check it out because all the songs on it are about fighting fascists, abolishing prisons, and migrants' rights. It's like their second record, maybe, I think. I don't know. I'm not some Discogs bitch. It came out in 1988, also, I think. I don't fucking know. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, thank you to Sindios. Thank you to Anna Armengod for being on the episode, for being so vulnerable, for being so fucking funny, for being so willing to talk. Thank you to La Cara Occulta, the band that sings the theme song. And finally, I have to say, at like 18 minutes in, I said the word oeuvre, and I meant the word milieu. And oeuvre is an artist's body of work, and milieu is a social scene, or like a world that people live in, and the people around them, and the other people in that social world. And I get those words confused. I only learned which one was which last week. I thought they were synonyms until now. I really did. And I am embarrassed about that. And I don't know why. I think it's mostly because I am insecure. Straight up. I hope that you now know what those words mean. Or if you already knew, you are not judging me too hard for not having known already. That's it. No cops, no creeps, no borders. Fuck ice. Free Palestine. I'm out.